welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So it's been a while since we've sat down to record a podcast. I'm thrilled to be here with you to record today. We uh, had a little hiatus because of all the holidays. I think there was not a, like, week after week after week with maybe one non-Yantif day, non-Shabbos day, uh, or so it seemed. So it was not a lot of time for podcast recording, but here we are. Congratulations, you made it. <laughs> Congratulations, you made it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so here we are. So it's Parshat Vayera this week. Uh, this is, like, if you had, like, you know... Just, just wants to be fun to have. Like instead of having a different Torah portion every week, if we could have the same Torah portion for like the whole year, we uh, could just there's so much to unpack. If in we some could of like the, live in the Brayshit parshas for a while, so much to unpack, right? Like each each week is is like you know each each uh, set of verses is lots to unpack, lots of ideas, lots of core themes. You're there laughing. are shuls that do a triennial cycle. No, but they don't do they don't do uh, that. Oh, they only do a third yeah. of each. They the, ancient, the ancient the ancient cycle did. was a three. This came up a, over Shabbat. That's why that was in my head. Oh, really? So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The ancient triennial cycle was like was to actually stay in those parshas. So they would exactly they finish the tar every three. Years. I think the modern congregations and some of the liberal denominations that do the, the trainal cycle, they just do a third of each part. So it's a shorter Shabbos morning, you know, shul experience, which has, I guess, advantages and disadvantages. Because then you get to do a Parsha class after shul. You could do that anyway. <laughs> anyway, it just it takes a lot. Everything. And get home in time for lunch. You could just... <laughs> somebody, somebody once said to me, you know, the, the, the shul board decides when davening ends and then like the rabbit decides when davening begins but there, you can you can fit in whatever you need to fit in it's just a question of when you start and when you finish that's deep uh, yeah very very deep <laughs> okay Fayera, um, like many many themes I think maybe the like most um, fraught theme of Parshat Fayera and the most uh, intense theme of Parshat Fayera and the most storied theme of Parshat Fayera is the episode of Akedat Yitzchak the binding of Isaac which um, you know not only is it among the most dramatic um, episodes in Sefer Breshit, it also occupies a really core place in, in Jewish liturgy. We evoke it in our um, tefillot, especially Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Slichot uh, make reference to Akedat Yitzchak. Uh, so it's become a really um, important piece of Jewish life, this story. Isaac's, uh, Abraham's willingness to offer his son Isaac, Isaac's willingness to be offered. Uh, and... It's a just a troubling story, right? It's 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 yeah. uh it's violent or it's nearly violent. There's there's a lot of um, it, it's a kind of obedience that is frightening. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to place yourself in either of their shoes while you're reading it, of like being Abraham or being Isaac in this story, and actually follow it through. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right, and it right, and it has a happy ending, except like the fact that it. So how happy can the ending be if it almost wasn't a happy ending, right? It's a, a, right, a, yeah. yeah. I didn't, we were, I was discussing this at my Shabbos table this past week of uh, what, what exactly happens to Isaac in the aftermath, what would be the fallout of that kind of interaction, right? Obviously, Isaac seems to live with the trauma of almost being killed by his own father for the sake of God. Like, where, where does Isaac go in the story? How is he impacted by this? Is he able to talk to his father after this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think the the role that Isaac, and you and I discussed this a few, you know, earlier today, I think the role that Isaac plays being turned into a hero of the Akedah in some of the liturgy, like some of those, like, slichot and the pew team, the poems we recite, 
uh, in the holiday season, leading up to that, the holiday season, by, by turning Yitzchak into a hero of this own of this story that he was willing, that he went along, that he participated. Right. I think that kind of is a it's like a different role than just this like passive victim of his father's fanaticism, which is like one one read, right? Isaac, no, right. I, it's like the two of them were partners. Isaac right. and his father were both committed to this, to like living their lives um, in accordance with God's will, even though it, you know, whatever it meant uh, for for each of them. Uh, I, I, I have read some of, not all of. I am, you know, to quote a book that I haven't finished. Uh, Professor Aaron Kohler wrote a book on on Yitzchak uh, that was published, I guess, a year or two ago called Unbinding Isaac, really interesting intellectual history of this story. So he summarizes some of the classic Midrashim and the way the Chazal treated the story. And then he uh, writes about how the medieval Jewish thinkers treated the story. And then what's sort of more, which was interesting, of course, but was like important, maybe, uh, more important about his, his scholarship was he then indicates where the intellectual history of this, the reception of this story amongst, uh, like, in the world takes a pivot and a turn, and he thinks in a more troubling direction with Kierkegaard, the Danish uh, philosopher who presents this story as a paradigm of how, like somebody, you know, the, the the person of faith, you know, their utter faith in God, their overwhelming faith in God, um, and their certainty that they're receiving a message from God gives them this this ability to a, a license to suspend the normal demands of ethics and. At least within one strand of, or via one strand of Rosalovich's uh, thinking and writing, that has ended up really influencing the modern Orthodox perception of this story. That this is an example of you have your ethical sentiments, you have your ethical evaluations of things that you encounter in the world and in the world of mitzvot as well, and you ignore it. <laughs> you ignore them and you, you stifle them, and instead but you, then you obedience is a high religious value, right? Of obedience to God's will. Correct, and I, I think. I think obedience to God's will is an inescapable part of the story. I think Professor Kohler's argument is that it's like, what's the contrast, right? Like, what, 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 what's, what's the tension in the story? And I think in the Midrashim, the tension is Avram's love for his son versus his love for God or his obedience to God. And in Kierkegaard's version, it's obedience to God versus ethics, which mm-hmm. maybe is a more pernicious um, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, like, dichotomy to set up because... Um, like in the aftermath of this story, God doesn't tell us to sacrifice right. our children, right? right. Like that's the upshot of the story. We're not supposed to do right. that, but <laughs> we, we do have ethics, right? That we do live, we do have an ethical um, uh, instinct and we ethically evaluate things all the time. And if there's a segment of our community that has like, you know, absorbed the lesson that we're supposed to stifle those ethical feelings, mm. I think that can be really pernicious in, right. in all sorts of ways. I, don't know, I found I found that like a very helpful, like rehabilitation of this story. That's like like you know just because it's it's deployed in a harmful way in certain segments of our community, uh, that doesn't mean that that's what this story has to mean, and it's not what it even has meant. For the like majority. classically, yeah, like amongst Jews, as Jews have studied the story, like we're mm-hmm. not, we, we don't have to like read the story the way Kierkegaard did, you know, like that's not yeah. Yeah, necessary for us. Um, and the other like footnote to that. Um, Kind of retelling or that you know situating the you know the Kierkegaardian Soloveitchik read of the story in its broader like Jewish uh, persp- you know context is that um, even Soloveitchik himself like this was like one thing he spoke about in the context of like a broader <laughs> richer philosophy that was very very focused on ethics and uh, people who were in his shear people who like learned with him regularly like it was like he emphasized the ethical imperative you know 
Yom and Velayla, that was, that was like a constant uh, recurring theme. Uh, and so the fact that he read this story in a particular, you know, inspired by Kierkegaard in a certain way, um, that doesn't mean that, you know, he disregarded ethics, right? And, and yet what sometimes happens is that with complicated teachers who have like this really vast legacy and really diverse students, you have like one or two students. Some students embrace like one facet of their teacher's overall worldview and then they kind of expand it into something much more comprehensive when mm. the, their original teacher was much more complicated and, you know, and so that, that's... I think a further troubling dynamic and maybe a dangerous dynamic. Like, right, we have to be obedient, we have to care about mitzvah, we have to learn how to do mitzvah, but we also like have to listen to our ethical sense. And maybe that's also like a lesson of the story when God tells you, you know, bring your son up and you know, as an olah, like doesn't you know, like in the end, um, God didn't want Abraham to sacrifice; he just wanted him to bind him or put him up on the rock, bring him to the altar, and then not actually sacrifice him. And sometimes we we can find out if we, if we learn a little bit better, we learn a little bit harder, we listen to our ethical intuition, we can sometimes, uh, you know, come up with a happy ending, right, to some of our other ethical conundrums that we face. It's certainly harder to discern when you're, when God's not speaking to you directly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, that is, that is true, that is true, but I don't, but I think that's... Maybe it's a, it's an invitation to act with even more caution then, right, if you're, right, God's not going to step in and say, uh, right, right, don't, don't hurt the child. We have to intuit that. We have to incorporate our own ethical senses and say, this aligns with divine will, in my understanding. Yeah, so I think that was, that was um, to what I understand, that was David Hartman's critique of um, the race by Rosalovich students of the Akeda as a paradigm of like, well, you're not, you're not the one, <laughs> you know, tortured, <laughs> you know, person of faith. Like, you're not the one on the altar. It's someone else's Akeda, not yours, yeah. right? And so, mm-hmm. like, it's great. You feel so torment. You're stifling your ethical intuition because of God's command. But the one who's suffering is, you know, is the aguna or the whatever, mm-hmm. the person with a halakhic impediment to marriage or to whatever it might be or somebody, you know, whatever, whatever the conundrum might be that, like, mm. you know, you can't solve. Like, it's not, it's not your Akeda, right? It's, you're not the victim. You're just the one who's, who is, has the knowledge where you're, which you deploy on behalf of helping people rather than, you know. Sometimes people do it to themselves as well, I think. And that's also dangerous. True, true. Uh, Dafiomi has been on a amazing stretch these past few months. I think it's been just a wonderful correspondence with the holidays that we've been learning Seder Moed. So all of the Dafiomi Masechta have been like holiday themes as we've been exper- going through the holidays. It's like an incredible alignment of like the Dafiomi cycle and our and our calendar. Right now, as we're recording this, uh, we're uh, towards the beginning of Masechet Rosh Hashanah. So it's a little bit late for Rosh Hashanah, but it's, you know, it's okay. Like, we still remember Rosh Hashanah. It's still only a few weeks uh, prior. And really, um, Masechet Rosh Hashanah is not just about Rosh Hashanah. It's about the entire Jewish calendar. It's a wonderful Masechet like, that provides introduction to the Jewish calendar. So it's really very, um, like lots of juicy tidbits that are very immediately <laughs> and obviously of practical uh, relevance. Today's daf had this concept of Mosifin Michol al HaKodesh that we add a little bit from the ordinary, from the mundane, to the holy, and we do that in our calendar. The example is the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year. Some of the restrictions start before the seventh year. Some of the restrictions extend into the eighth year. And then we also find that on the laws of Yom Kippur. We always start the fast of Yom Kippur a little bit on the ninth of Tishrei, the day before. And then every Shabbat and Yom Tov, we begin the restrictions of the holiday before the sun has set, and we extend them until after dark. And so we're adding from... uh, you know, from Chol Al HaKodesh. So that's sort of like, I don't know, that can be like a, on a basic level, that could be about uh, precaution, like let's be careful, but uh, maybe it's something else. Yeah, I mean, it, 
you could say that it's, uh, you know, we're taking, we're kind of donating some of our own weekday time to the cause of sanctity, to God, right? You know, it, the, the part that's lachem, the part that's for us during the weekday that we might use for any other purpose, we're saying, actually, we're going to take some of that uh, scarce resource, our time, and we're going to dedicate it to God even more. Uh, that's, that's one way of looking at it, you know. And, and in the other direction, or maybe in, in just a different direction, thinking about if, if we're able to take that weekday time and add it into the holy and sanctify it, perhaps that reflects back on the fact that there's there's uh, kedusha, there's sanctity hidden in any moment. There's potential for sanctity in any moment throughout our week, throughout our days, um, that if only we take uh, the, the intention to morph it into something holy or to elevate it into something holy, um, we could do that. It's within our hands to do that. Well, that's very nice. It's like a bias towards holiness in the universe or in time. Right? We, ha- we can take that it's, yeah. minutes of whole and make them into holy right and that even even throughout the week right that the holy is always there like it's waiting for us to be, to elevate it in, from these moments right that's that's how it's kind of uh mitzvot every day are kind of like that right i can take this money and and buy something mundane or i can take this money and give it to tzedakah and elevate its purpose or i can take this food and eat it or i can make a bracha i can make a blessing over it and elevate its purpose right so there, right then, in the, the Chazik thought, we talk about like elevating sparks that are that are just hidden with from the creation in in everyday mundane objects, and we can elevate them if we if we find them. So remind you of that capacity by starting the holidays, not like at the very last minute, but a little bit before. So we right, take so. that time and we say, oh, I see, I see the sanctity here, I see the holiness, and I'm going to elevate it. So the sunset is 6:05. <laughs> I'm going to like light my candles 18 minutes earlier than right. I'm going to take a little bit of like weekday time. I'm going to like. Shabbos starting 18 minutes earlier yeah. before it has to. Give it a glow. Give it a glow. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. So like, pragmatically, it means, right, you always start the holidays before the last possible minute, okay? Uh, even just Which one is also m- important not to violate, you know, the yeah. Shabbat or correct, holidays, Correct, correct. Right? Yeah, because there are like two, two issues. Like somebody, when we were learning the daf this morning, somebody asked about this. Like there are two sort of, I guess, overlapping but, but like distinct issues. One is we don't exactly know. That's right. We're human. We're fallible. And we d- can't tell time begin exactly. And end, right? That's one issue. And so the way that that... Like so, we so Bein Hashmasho that that exactly. in between time, we tack it onto Shabbos on Friday, and then we tack it onto Shabbos on Saturday night. So it like could that, be night, it could be day. We yes. don't know. So you pick one, right? Really, <laughs> only one of them should be Shabbos, right? That period between sunset and dark, right? Only one of those, whatever, forty-two minutes, thirty minutes, whatever it is, wherever you live. But like that that chunk of time, that twilight time, it's either Shabbos or not, and we treat both of them as Shabbos on Friday after sunset and on Saturday after sunset until dark. Like both of those are we count as Shabbos. So that's like. That's like that comes from some sort of unknowing or like some sort of like yeah, lack of like not a, wanting to violate Shabbat prohibitions. Or but then even beyond like that, right? When, even we have okay, well, this so I'm going to start Shabbos at sunset because I'm going to be extra careful. But then I'm going to start Shabbos before sunset. I'm going to do it right. Eighteen and, minutes. Yeah, eighteen minutes, right? So even if you know, sometimes I don't know, I've, I know that some families we go into the eighteen and need all those. You know, I think we've all been there. <laughs> we've done with some families. But every least, person. But at least, <laughs> the, but at least one moment in order to fill this concept of Masifin Mikol mm, uh, mm. at least a moment before you have to like. Light, light your candles and accept Shabbos or Yantif. And to avoid the angst of, oh my God, I might violate Shabbat. Because yes. you know, that's what it's there for. The buffer is your friend. The buffer is your friend. That's lovely. Yes, the buffer <laughs> is your friend. Okay. This past Shabbat, we had an inaugural parent-child learning. Uh, children in grades. Well, in person. In person. Our inaugural in person. 57, 82. First time, 57. Yeah. Right. Parent-child learning is a 
program that has existed for many years at our shul. This is the first time we've done it again in person in quite some time, the first time in this 5782 year. Uh, and, and for kids in grades two through five with a parent or adult friend. Uh, and uh, we, I, I wanted to reflect back on uh, what we like what we discussed because you made up like a pedagogical point, which I thought was really profound and, and uh, of, of value, not just to the second through fifth graders, but to all of our listeners of whatever age they happen to be. So uh, I, I guess just by way of context, there was a question like Rashi and Ramban had as they often do, have two opinions about some matter of Parshanut. Abraham and Lot, they separate because their shepherds are fighting, and Rashi has one interpretation of what they were fighting about, and Ramban has another interpretation of what they were fighting about, and that we talked about that, and we talked about um, sort of the, I guess, the strengths and weaknesses of each of those interpretations, and how each of those interpretations explain something about the story and help us understand who Avram was and who Lot was, and, and you know, the fraught decision they made to eventually separate. Uh, but then you said something else, which I want to, like, you know, sh- share a little <laughs> bit with, please. Well, what was interesting, right, they're, they're both trying to answer that question of why were the uh, shepherds of Lot and Avraham fighting? Why, what, were, what was their fight about? Um, and... What I always push my students to do is to prove it from the text, right? So whenever you're making an argument about about Torah or about Mishnah or Gemara or anything you're learning, right? Look back, you have a good argument, prove it from the text. And that's what par- good Parshanim will do that because they're ultimately, they're, they're dedicated readers of the text, right? That's what they're, they're dedicated to the text itself of the Torah. So uh, both Ramban and Rashi, I was, when they were having this debate of whether or not the core issue was about uh, stealing or just about disagreement and, and, and not having enough space for one another um, to, for, to accommodate each of their flocks. They both chose to cite as their textual proof the same uh, detail from the verse. They both said, well, I know that it's true that, uh, that the Ro'e Lot, that the shepherds of Lot were stealing from the, previous, from the pr- current owners of the land because the, te- the text says, right? the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, I don't know how to say that word, mm-hmm. um, That's good. Were, good. were in the land. And, and the other commentator says the same thing about the, their interpretation. Right? I knew that they were... Um, that they were arguing about a proper right to the land, and they were just, uh, you know, or, or they were arguing about um, who, if they had enough space in the land, because they said, well, the Pasuk says, look, there were other people already inhabiting the land. They needed room for their sheep, and so did Lot, and so did Avraham, and therefore they were just fighting about space in the land for, to accommodate everyone's sheep. So it was interesting how they took this ambiguous uh, phrase of the, why did the Torah include this detail, and they both took it and claimed it as textual proof for their claims, which, right, I, I, we pose this to the kids, like, who's, who's more compelling, right? What, did they actually have a better proof one way or the other? And they had to come up with other context clues or, or what they thought were the strengths and weaknesses, but the rooting it in the text is um, something that's core to Parshanim and core to Parshanut in general. And it's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's neat because they each, they're, Rashi and Ravan were each kind of drawing the same, like the same verse was, was like in each of their arsenal, right? As, exactly. like, as, as evidence and it's both, for, this is an ambiguous phrase that doesn't really tell us anything. And it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that they both came with this, this answer. And it could be that they thought of this answer before and then found a root in the text or the other way around. If, mm-hmm. But, right, and I think to training the next generation or even ourselves as learners of Torah, it's important to, to notice and to root ourselves in the text 
uh, and to make sure that our arguments are compelling, but also have a have a I've core. Personally, like in my life, one of the most rewarding experiences has been when I've, you know, whether it's been uh, verses in the Torah or a, or a Rambam or a Mishnah, whatever, like you sort of look at a text and you generate your own questions and then you realize, oh, the same questions I had, yeah. you know, like the Gemara asked the same question on the Mishnah or or like, oh, like this is an interesting phrase in the Rambam and like, oh, look at that, like the Magad Mishnah like asked that same question, you know, whatever, 600 years ago. Like that's like an incredibly... I find rewarding experience because you're realizing that uh, you're just part of this conversation. Like we're all trying to understand, you know, God's will and God's word, and, and like we're part of this conversation together. But that's exactly right, right? Noticing where they root, where Parshani root their answers, or how they source their answers and prove them, is just for, is, is us saying, of course, we're not on the same level as Rashi or Ramban as readers of the text just yet. Maybe in the future, right? <laughs> but um, we're part of the same right conversation. There, we're part, part of the, of the same, same convers- conversation. Yeah. At the at the center is the Torah. We might have the same questions. We might have different questions. But they're also um, beholden to the text itself, right? They're not. They're mm-hmm. not making up a because a, a superficial theory. way is just it's like the you know like a I don't know like a diet like a I don't know if you just read like the the digest and like the article Chumash, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, like Rashi thinks that this is what the argument was and, and Ramban thinks the argument was about that. And like, okay, how, how do they know that? I don't know, like who knows, right? But, well, what made them think that? Yeah, as people right. reading the text just as we're people so, encountering the text thinking the but same But it's thing. not that hard to like, you just like tell somebody, even a, even a second through fifth grader, like read carefully, like what questions are generated by these words? Like what mm-hmm. do you want to know more about? And how what, do you know, right? What's left out? And then you see like, oh, actually, no, I can be part of the same conversation. Obviously, again, they're, you know, they're the, they're the teachers, we're the students, yes. but we're the same conversation that we're having with them. I say it at every level of class that I teach, right? That's that's exactly it. That we're part of the same conversation, and we have the same tools, and it's just the training of the mind. Or you know, if one, if you have a good teacher, if you have the ability to learn those skills, even without the tech skills, often you can come up with the same questions and come up with similar answers. And then the added level is uh, find it in the text, and then you really, you really got it. Awesome. <laughs>